Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And thanks for tuning in this week. As always, we're recording from the Cleveland Public Library. Special thanks to them for making this podcast possible. And if you have any feedback or want to request any guests, go ahead and send me an email. I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. So this week on the show, we had State Senator Joe Schiavone. Yeah, I wasn't there, so I guess you guys can tell me, uh, why'd you have him on first? Why'd you, uh, why'd you ask him to come on? Joe's a young politician who is taking a chance on his gubernatorial run. Uh, in the show, we address the fact that he, you know, didn't necessarily wait his turn. He wants to be governor. He thinks that he's the chops. And when you talk to him, you kind of understand why. He's a very authentic guy. You can tell he's very passionate about the issues that he advocates for. He's also very candid. You know, sometimes politicians come off as rehearsed, robotic. Joe Schiavone, you sit down with a guy and you're just having a normal conversation with him. You can understand why he's a good politician because he's a good listener and you can tell he cares. Yeah, I think the thing that's most interesting is probably that candor that you talked about. He is, you know, he hasn't raised the most money. He readily admits that. He doesn't have the highest name ID. He readily admits that. And, but he's also just having fun and he thinks he can help. So that's why he wants to do it. He's perfectly content, I think, to go back to Youngstown and be a lawyer for another decade or something if this doesn't work out. And that, that sort of bluntness uh, lends to a really good conversation. I mean, I ended up nerding out with him about boxing for probably 10 minutes of this. So, uh, you know, apologies in advance. The other thing that I think is interesting is he is significantly younger than his chief rival, uh, Rich Cordray. He's got a young family at home. He's sacrificing, uh, you know, that time with those kids uh, to be on the campaign trail. And I don't think I don't think he takes that sacrifice lightly. He's 38 right now and, you know, got into politics when he was 28. And I'm thinking about what I'm doing at 28 and I would have absolutely no inclination of even thinking I could, you know, I write about politics and I don't even think I could win an office if I wanted to. I mean, the thing that you hear about millennials is that we're sort of like in this permanent state of, I don't know, like adolescence. So it's, I I guess he's like technically an old millennial because he's in his late thirties, but he's, he's there. But, you know, so clearly uh, he, you know, got up and went and is, is, is uh, accomplishing stuff at a pretty young age. So why do you think he hasn't been able to kind of parlay that into getting more momentum for his campaign? I think it's just a name thing. Politicians and political parties, they tend to fall into that mold of, hey, it's this guy's turn, we're running him next. And I don't know that that necessarily happened with Cordray, but I think he, by keeping his name out, I mean, he kept kind of donors from really giving a lot of money early on in the race. And then when his name got in and he was able to get, you know, basically $2 million in about seven weeks, that's a pretty big sign right there. Like, hey, that's, you know, this is going to be the guy. Dennis being Dennis, you know, he's got his own base and, uh, you know, he's had a base of support for 30, 40 years now. Joe, I mean, he's from Youngstown. It's not exactly the largest population center in the state, but he's, you know, he's got some supporters, but is it enough to carry you over a national figure like both Kucinich and Richard Cordray are? We've got a commenter in Cleveland.com who calls him the guy with the unpronounceable name. I I think Shivoni is like pretty easy to say, actually. Shivoni. As far as Italian names go, yeah. yeah. Without further ado, let's get to the interview that Mary and I did with Joe Schiavone. Joe, thanks so much for stopping by and joining us on Ohio Matters. How are you doing today? Very good. How's everything? We want to jump right into it. You know, you hail from the Mahoning Valley. It's a traditionally blue-collar union area. What was growing up there kind of like? 
Well, you know, everybody talks about a lot of the older people in the in the community talk about the days when you know you could walk from one steel mill to the other, and everybody had a job, and everybody had a little bit of money in their pocket. Everybody could pay for their kids' school. Everybody can you know go on a vacation once a year, and and that isn't the way that I saw it growing up in the Mahoning Valley because the year that I was born, all the steel mills closed, and so. I saw a lot of people shuffling. I saw a lot of people moving. I saw a lot of people that didn't know what their future was going to be like, and they were real concerned about that. I think in early on when I was growing up, people were holding out hope that magically there was going to be a 20,000-person steel mill that was going to drop out of the sky and save everybody. And then when they realized that wasn't going to happen, people either left or started changing what they needed to do in order to survive in the valley. And so that's the kind of stuff that I saw growing up. But, you know, I had a good upbringing. I have, you know, I have three little brothers. You know, my dad was a was an attorney. Um, and so, you know, he had three kids before he really got established as an attorney. So, I mean, we grew up in, I was born in Columbus, moved to Lansing, Michigan when I was like two, three years old. And then we moved to Youngstown when I was five. And so grew up in the Valley, but, you know, good, good neighborhood, good people. I love the community and, and I think we're doing well right now. Youngstown seems to be kind of an archetype for, you know, today's politics, that sort of uh, deindustrialization. I mean, is there still that mentality going on there where people think, oh, we're, we're magically going to get these factories to open? No. Um, I think there's some pockets of that, but I've been real honest with people. We need to focus on you know, funding incubators so we can have young people be able to stay in communities like ours. We need to redevelop our downtown. We need to shrink our city when it comes to blight removal and revitalization projects. That's the kind of stuff that I've been working on in the Senate because that's what we need to do. When you have a city that's built for 250,000 people and 75,000 people live in it, you got to change your ways. Now we have a lot of young leaders. Uh, In the last five or ten years, I've really seen some good positive movement, not just in the city but in the surrounding areas and into the suburbs. And I think that we get a lot of people that – you know, might work in Cleveland or Pittsburgh and decide to move to Youngstown because you can get a big house for a little bit of money and you can raise a family there and there's good school systems. So we're starting to see a lot more people moving to Youngstown from the surrounding areas just because of the cost of living. You know, you talk a lot about uh, younger politicians sort of uh, taking leadership roles in, uh, in the area. Were you always interested in politics? Were you always sort of politically aware, or politically active when you were younger? No. I mean, I, I would say that I was that voter. I think about myself when I was a workers' comp attorney uh, in Youngstown prior to being in the Senate. I was probably one of those undecided voters. I was definitely going to vote in the Democratic primary because I grew up a Democrat and I believe in the party. But I probably wouldn't have known any of the candidates at this point. You know, as I, I started working uh, in Big Brothers and Big Sisters, I started developing myself as a workers' comp attorney. I wanted to grow a family in the Mahoning Valley. And when I got put into politics, I said, I want to be somebody that really makes a difference or gives 100% trying. And so I didn't have that I want to be a politician when I grow up mentality. But I always was somewhat aware of what was going on and always somewhat active. But Um, you know, I really, really stepped it up the last 10 years. What did you want to be when you grew up? You know, I saw my grandfather was a workers' comp lawyer too. Um, He used to bring me to the courthouse when I was little, and I saw the way that he helped people. And so that was always the game plan for me. You know, my grandfather, father had the same kind of respect for people no matter where they were from no matter who they were everybody's on this earth and, and we're all the and we're all the same right and you got to treat people the same you got to treat people with respect 
and you treat people the way that you wanted to be treated. And so when people think about lawyers, they think about, you know, somebody sitting in some high rise that, you know, makes a ton of money and does all this stuff and, you know, is a highfalutin person that drives a fancy car. Like workers' comp lawyers, for us, it's just about helping people. And those people are your neighbors. Those people are your friends. And so that was always the plan. I went to Ohio University, went to Capital Law School, came back and started working in the firm. And it's an interesting lineage. You know, you don't think normally you hear of the kind of uh – you know, my father was a bricklayer, or my grandfather was a bricklayer, or something like that. You don't necessarily hear, my father was a workers' comp attorney, my grandfather was a workers' comp attorney, I mean, but it, it why, why did you want to follow in their footsteps? Was it just seeing them do the work, or what, what kind of drove you to it? Yeah, I mean, I saw the way that they impacted people's lives for the better. You know, and, and when you're a workers' comp lawyer, you are grinding it every day. I mean, we're sitting at a table like this at a hearing, 20 times a day, every 15 minutes it switches. I have my client here, you guys are on the other side, we talk through the issues, we try to resolve the issue for this guy today. Then we move on to the next issue, we move on to the next issue. And so you can really see that impact of how you are really affecting people's lives for the better. And when people come into the office, I mean, they're frustrated about the system, they need help, they're worried about how they're gonna turn their lights on and pay their bills, and they want you to be to take action immediately. And I saw that stuff. And I bring a lot of that to the Senate. You know, it's about making good points. It's about being concise in your argument. It's about always remembering that the people that you represent are why you're there. It's not about who gives the best speech or who can, you know, BS the best. It's about helping people. And that's what I did with my clients. And that's what I do with my constituents. So Youngstown Politics has a reputation, I'm sure you what know, kind? It, right? <laughs> yeah, what is the reputation? Yeah. Uh, you know, the Jim Trafficking all the way sure. to, you know, John McNally just a couple of years ago. Uh, what I'm interested in is what's true and what is not about those stereotypes. So I think that in the past, obviously, there was a mob presence, you know, and this is before my lifetime. Maybe, I mean, I shouldn't say before my lifetime. There was some mob presence in the 90s. Right. And so but since then, that has been gone. So people still bring that up when I go place. I mean, my last name's Shivoni. I'm from Youngstown. You know, people like to make jokes about the mafia. It's not really funny. You know, my Youngstown does not have mob presence and there's no mob presence over politicians. Now, there still is that that stereotype. And it is somewhat true about some politicians in Youngstown are out for themselves and you know, there's there's power brokers that try to move them and shift them. And so when I got appointed in 2009, I didn't realize, but Senator Kafara was the minority leader from Trumbull County. She was looking to appoint somebody that did not have any political background so that she could dispel that Youngstown nonsense, right? It's like, get a new guy in there, somebody that doesn't have any baggage, somebody that doesn't have any background so that we can really focus on moving forward with somebody young, new, energetic, and hardworking. I didn't realize that she was looking for me, but it just kind of happened. And so I think that when you get people like me that don't have that political background, that don't come from a political family, then you can knock that myth back and you can push that back. And I push it back every day in, in every corner of the state when I go there, respectfully. I'll joke with somebody if they want to joke about it, but if they really start, you know, quizzing me on, you know, my background and where I come from, I, I will definitely push back and stick up for the people of the Valley. So since there, you know, since the indictments have come down and whatnot, I mean, is it, has it seemed like it's cleaned up at all? Is that, uh, like, like you said, is that just kind of like urban, not even urban legend, but uh, folklore now, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, it's... It is definitely um, 
a thing of the past. I mean, there was the McNally indictment and there was some, you know, you'll look at the evidence and there was some email that went back and forth where McNally said that he was going to do something for one of the stakeholders of, of a project. And so that was the issue, right? And that is that is illegal and we need to stop doing that stuff. You know, that was a way of the past and, and McNally acknowledged his wrongdoing. I know there was a lot of people that acknowledged their wrongdoing in the Oak Hill uh, I think John McNally's a good guy, and it's hard. He made a mistake, and I've, you know, it is what it is. He's not the mayor anymore. You know, when you do stuff like that, you got to pay the price, and he paid the price. He lost the election. The people said in the valley and in, in the city of Youngstown, we don't want that stuff, and it's gone. What goes through your mind as a politician from the area when you see another very important figure? get indicted by a special prosecutor and this all comes down i mean it's going to be huge news and um even just the corruption angle what what goes through your mind when you're from the same area and like you said you've had to dispel some of those myths before probably because your name ends in a vowel yeah of course it's another black eye for the valley is what i see when whenever you see that stuff it's like when are we going to get over this when are we going to be able to cut through this i've had people on the campaign trail say to me that like me joe People think Youngstown is garbage. Don't talk about how much you love Youngstown. I'm like, <laughs> I get what you're saying, but I do love Youngstown. And you would love Youngstown, too, if you came to Youngstown. So they say, we'll talk more about the Mahoning Valley. I'm like, it's the same difference for me. That's where I'm from. I mean, I'm not going to wordsmith this thing. That, that kind of frustrates me, but I have to acknowledge that it's real. And when you're running a statewide campaign, you have to be cognizant of the fact that that is what some people in this crowd that you're talking to are thinking when you're talking to them. It seems like sports might have been your kind of first true passion just from doing some research yeah. on you. You know, I think everybody knows you were a Golden Glove boxer back in the day. Uh, you were a champion, right? Mm -hmm. What weight class did you have box at? 135. 135. Yeah. All right. I think I weighed 135 in like eighth grade maybe. Yeah. But that was I was also, you know, kind of a little, little chubbier on my side. I understand. Um, so you released an ad for uh, the governor's race where you're boxing. I don't want to know why you went with that imagery. What is it about that imagery that makes you want to put out an ad like that? Well, that's who I am, first of all. And I told, you know, the team when I decided to run for governor, I'm not going to do some stupid ads where, where you're walking through some mill with your sleeves rolled up in some hard hat talking to people you don't even know. I will refuse to do that. Everybody in my ad, I want somebody to be somebody that I actually worked with and that I know and that knows me and that can advocate and stick up for me as somebody that's real. And so... Let's do the boxing ad. You fought in the Golden Gloves. You fight for people in the state house. You fought for people as a workers' comp lawyer. People want somebody that is going to stand up for them and fight for them. And so let's use it. At first, I didn't really love the idea because, you know, like I really don't box anymore. I mean, I'm 38 years old like I did this when I was a teenager, right? So I, I as we were doing the takes, I said, you know, every time we do this, it's getting worse, guys. Because it's like... You know, the first couple are going to be the best here, but, like, I haven't been in the ring for 15 years. You know, I fooled around. You know, I still go to the gym and I work out. But, like, it was, so it was kind of fun for me to do that. Um, but at the end of the day, it was about showing who you are and showing that you are a fighter for people. I covered Harry Reid before I got here. Um, he's a boxer. And it seems like every time a politician used to be a boxer, you know, it has to be mentioned one way or another. And I don't know why that is because you don't think of – the football players right. who become, you know, politicians, the basketball players, the baseball players, the track stars, whoever. 
what is it about like why are we so enthralled with you know boxers when they enter public life especially when they enter public life i mean it's a gritty sport you know and politics is gritty and i think that that's what people people want somebody that can get down and dirty and and put in the work you know it takes a lot of dedication and hard work to get yourself prepared to get in that ring physically and mentally it takes a lot of dedication and preparation if you want to be a good solid elected official you know you say politician elected official public servant whatever it is if you want to be a good one, you got to work your ass off. And it's the same way in a boxing ring. And so I think that's what people like. You know, I, I also kind of deflect it a little bit, though, because I am a person that likes to work with others. Like, I don't just go down there and fight with people. So I don't want people to think that, that I'm just a flamethrower that's going to go in there and bomb people every single day. Like, it's about sitting at a table and working things out first. And if I got to fight, yeah, you'll see videos of me fighting in the state house with people and arguing. Because it, sometimes you get pissed off and sometimes you could tell your people are getting screwed and you got to stand up for that. But it's about working first. I always think of the Mike Tyson quote, uh, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Right. You know, <laughs> very quickly, because I'm something of a boxing fan, I want you to give me your top five boxers real quick. So I think that when you look back, Tyson has to be the most exciting boxer. So you have to have Tyson in there. You have to have Ali in there. You have to have Joe Lewis in there. You have to have Rocky Marciano in there. And then you got to, at least in my life, for the biggest upset of all time, you got to have Buster Douglas in there for ah. the big knockout, for the big upset. <laughs> but you could Sugar Ray, Hagler, Hearns, Duran, all those guys, like growing up watching those fighters in the 80s, early 90s, like that was the heyday of boxing. That was prime time. That's when everybody surrounded their TVs. My dad would have parties for every fight, and all his friends would come over. And, like, I grew up watching that stuff. And so all those guys are, are heroes of mine one way or another. And, and I got to talk about Kelly Pavlik. I was just going to ask you about Kelly Pavlik. You used to represent him, right? We fought, you know, the same age. Uh, he's a couple years younger. And so he was, like, 15 when I was 18. And, you know, he started beating my ass. And then when you're, when you're 15... When you're 18 and you're getting beat up by a 15-year-old, it's not cool. But it's all right when he's the middleweight champ of the world. And I do love Kelly. He's a good-hearted dude. Made some mistakes outside of the ring at the end of his career. But he's still a good guy that really helps his community. And he provided a lot of excitement for Youngstown in the Mahoning Valley. Did you get the last laugh in the end? Because, I mean, you did get the retainer after all, right? Well, you know, I did some work <laughs> for him. We, we had fun, too. You know, I got him some contracts with Affliction Clothing and BW3s and Home Savings Bank and um, Under Armour. And he really did, he really, really had a, a path to, you know, become a, a worldwide name. I mean, a blue-collar middleweight champ from the Valley, that was a story. And it was powerful. And sometimes... You know, I'll just watch that knockout of Taylor every once in a while just to just to remember that. And, and I do love Kelly. He's a good dude. Is it is it weird representing a celebrity? No, because he never really thought he was. I mean, he he um, he's about as down to earth as possible and uh, never an extravagant spender, never a big talker, just a good scrapping dude that really, really. Um, never embraced that stardom and that was a a good thing but also a bad thing because he always wanted to go out with his friends and fool around well you're the middleweight champ of the world you can't be going to the bars on the south side of Youngstown and drink it till two in the morning like and you know he he never balanced that properly and, and I think he would acknowledge that um, but I will say that he's done a lot of good things for a lot of people in Youngstown and in this in the state and in the country because I've been with him when he's doing it. He would really reach out to kids. He would really reach out to people that needed help. And he gave people a lot of hope that, 
you know, they could be like him because he was just a tough kid from the south side of Youngstown that grew up with nothing. Besides Pavlik, who would you say is your most memorable client? Well, workers' comp client. Any. I mean, I didn't have any star clients here. Kelly was the only mm. one just because we were friends, right? <laughs> I mean, most people are, are people that work at General Motors and, you know, work in factories that got hurt. I mean, I, if you saw an ad, we had Jomi Hanlon do an ad. Um, that was probably one of my most memorable clients. I mean, her husband had a heart attack while he was fixing a truck and died, and she had little girls and didn't know what to do, and BWC denied her claim. And my dad and I and Sean Maldani, our other partner, worked real, real hard on making sure that we got her what was des- what was deserved to her for her family. And she was able to put her kids through college because of the, the case, you know. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's real. That's the kind of stuff that makes you tick. That's the kind of stuff that makes you believe that there are still good people in this world and that you and they need they need help. Do you ever miss practicing law? I do. I do. I mean, I've practiced law all the way up till probably six months ago, at least a little bit. Like I couldn't do workers comp anymore because it was a conflict because you couldn't go in front of the appointed, you know, uh, hearing officers. So I did a lot of auto accidents. I mean, I would work on them in the car. I would work on them in different places. You can do a lot of work remotely on those kind of cases because they're, they're not hearing intensive. There's just a lot of conversations and negotiations. And so I was able to still work and still make a little bit of money that way uh, over the past 10 years. But the last six, eight months, I haven't done any kind of, it's a little bit busy. Get Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit Cleveland.com slash Capital Letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. So we mentioned this earlier, but one of the things about Joe is that he's one of the, if, I think he's the youngest gover- candidate for governor, right? So I, I believe so, yeah. Let's tease that out a little bit. Like, what, So you guys talked a little bit about that. What do you think that does as far as you know, uh, informing his perspective as a candidate? I think Joe cares very deeply about policy issues, and I think that he also deeply believes that young people are engaged. He said that repeatedly. He talked about how in his hometown of Youngstown and in the Mahoning Valley, he knows of of several very, very active and involved young people sort of in the political arena. So I think he pushed back a little bit about this idea or stereotype that young people aren't involved in politics. He really pushed back against that. And I think that's interesting given sort of the atmosphere, the climate that we're in today. 
what with teenagers across the country protesting gun violence, uh, with young women across the country telling their stories of uh, sexual misconduct or abuse that they have encountered on the job, the Me Too movement. He addressed the Me Too movement a little bit too. He said that he had never seen a direct example of uh, misconduct in the Ohio legislature. Uh, obviously, we have reported that there have been some alleged incidences of misconduct there. His attitude toward it was really one of disgust and confusion. It, it's like he doesn't have time for it. He doesn't know why it's happening. I think he's relatable to young people. He shares their perspective on this Me Too movement. He shares their perspective on college affordability. And I really believe that Joe Schiavone is not discounting the youth movement or the youth vote at all. Oh, I don't think he's discounting it. I think he's kind of relying on it, actually. I think, you know, his his pathway to victory is probably slimmer than, say, Cordray or Kucinich, but it, it could be there. I mean, if you do see a huge groundswell of young voters come out in the primary and in 2018, there's there's no reason that it couldn't happen. You look what's happening with all the protests going on. I mean, those are high school kids, but if it's young people in general who are getting involved in politics, I mean, why not? I saw Schiavone did a Facebook Live the other day where he was basically talking about the gun issue and fielding questions and stuff like that. And he's not the only candidate who's going on Facebook Live, but it kind of struck me that that's a platform that young people are using. And he's, I think, trying to reframe the issue, kind of given people who have basically sadly grown up in an environment where school shootings have become normal. And with that, let's get back to more of the interview with Joe Schiavone. You were selected to replace John Bocieri in 2008 in the state Senate at age 28. Why were you even interested in being a politician at 28? So I talked about this a little bit earlier. The way that this worked, it was kind of weird. You know, Kafara was the leader. She got a list from the Mahoning County Democratic Party, which is the normal way that you replace somebody and then the leader selects. Well, she didn't like any of the people on the list for whatever reason. I'm not saying she didn't like them. She didn't, she didn't want to pick any of them. So she did an open application process. At that point, I'm just a guy that's reading the newspaper at the office, and I say, look, this is something that I think I can do well at. You know, I was a part of a lot of uh, nonprofits and you know, I didn't have kids at that time. I didn't have a wife at the time. I was just dating my wife then. And I said, let's go for this thing. And so I talked to some older politicians. I talked to some people that were involved and they said, yeah, put your application in. We need something new. We need a fresh face in this thing. And so that's why I went forward with it. But I honestly had no idea what I was getting into, and surely no idea that I'd be running for governor nine years later. Did you, when you were growing up, did you want to be governor? No. But but I think that now um, I understand the impact of what a good, solid politician can make in this world. And it is tough. But if you concentrate on the people that you care about and you concentrate on what's important and you don't get so in the weeds on all the political stuff. It's just like, just talk about real stuff. And that's why I'm continuing to do this, even though you know, I might not have as much money as Richard Cordray and I might not have the name recognition that Richard Cordray has. I can win this thing because people want somebody real and they want somebody new and they want somebody that's going to fight for them. And those are the things that they tell me every single day in every corner of the state, whether you're up in the middle of nowhere in Western Ohio or you're you know, in the city of Cleveland. You were obviously pretty young when you entered elected office. And I know that you mentioned in the Youngstown area, there are a lot of young leaders there. You know, that's not necessarily a reflection of the state as a whole. 
Um, how do we encourage more young people to run for office and uh, seek elected office? I think it is shifting, though. I mean, if you look at the 17 elections, there's a lot of young first-time people that didn't have any political background at all that won for school board and city council and all these local races in places where Democrats don't normally win. And I was calling through the list of all the people that won that that next morning, and I, I felt a lot of excitement in their voices. I felt a lot of power in you know, their, their win that they just got. And so I think it is changing, but to answer your question— let people have primaries. Let it be fair. You know, don't push and pull from the top. You know, let people have choice. Because when you let people have choice, then it creates an atmosphere where young people are willing to step up, even when, you know, they're not in the, that establishment lane. And, and I think that's important. You know, along those same lines, typically young people don't vote in midterm elections. Do you think that will change this year in 2018? If I have anything to do for, <laughs> I mean, with it, I that's what I've been trying to do. I mean, I've been to almost every college campus, some of them multiple times. I've not only tried to go to the college campuses and talk to the traditional young Dems group, but also any political science class that will let me in. You know, any kind of social group, young professional group, these groups of young people that they do want to get involved in politics. They just don't like any politicians. So when you get in front of them, and you create that relationship with them, it's powerful. And I've really, really tried to work on that. Most young people, they don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. They could care less. They just want somebody that is good, that listens, that understands their issues. And that's, and that's all they're asking for. What kind of energy are you seeing on those college campuses? Are people excited? They are. I mean, we just went to uh, Miami of Ohio last week. You know, the I looked at the sign when I walked in, the max occupancy was 100, and there was more than 100 kids in there. I mean, we were, those kind of crowds we've been growing at, in Athens, we had a huge group down at OU, um, in Akron, in Kent, very, very strong groups. Toledo, we had a strong group. So, I mean, young people are showing up. But again, I like to go to those poli-sci classes, too, where you can get in that lecture hall with 100, 150 kids. And you don't go crazy about why you should be a Republican or why you should be a Democrat. But you remind them that there's somebody in the race that cares about them and understands their issues, jobs, student debt, things that are really, really important to them today. Because you got to think, I mean, most voters care about what you're going to do for them. I want to switch gears and ask you a couple questions about your time in the legislature. Mm -hmm. You've been uh, in the Ohio State House for about a decade now and risen through the ranks pretty quickly. This fall, we've seen um, sort of an outcry of the Me Too movement, and we've seen examples of problems in the Ohio State House uh, with regard to sexual harassment. I wanted to ask you, you know, frankly, do you see a problem in the Ohio State House when it comes to sexual harassment? I've never seen it with my own eyes, but it exists obviously by all the stuff that has happened. You know, I've talked to my staff about it. I've talked to um, different members about it. We need to create a place in the Ohio Senate and the Ohio House where this does not happen. And if it does, there needs to be a channel to where somebody can make a complaint. And it's not like making a complaint to the same people that are harassing you, right? It's Everybody's too tightly linked in there. I think we need to make sure that we have a HR group of people that are actually outside and don't have any bias to these legislators. And if there's a complaint, 
that they go in there and they investigate this stuff and they take care of business immediately because we can't have this stuff going on. It sets a horrible tone for the rest of the state. It's a horrible example. These are your elected officials that people are trusting to go down there and work on legislation, not to sexually harass people. And so when and it and you've seen the dominoes fall, you've seen people go down in the last two, three months and for good reason. So you never saw an example of, say, like uh, Bill Seitz doing his thing. Or... I never did. But I'll is tell that what you, you call it? Yeah, doing his thing. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you, I will tell you, I don't go out like I mean, I have two little boys at home and a wife that I want to come home to. Like if I don't have to be in session, I'm not fooling around at some stupid legislation or, or reception like i don't it's just not part of my thing i've never gone out with people people have said well i'm a little you know i don't want to be friends with him it's not i don't want to be friends with people i like being friends with people i don't have time to be friends with people right now i have too much stuff to do and so i've always been like that in the senate so i don't i've never seen it because i don't really do anything in with the senate other than do my work you know along those same lines though there is still a gender gap uh, at the ohio state house you know, a couple months ago, it was you and three other women who were running for Ohio governor on the Democratic side. Now there are no women. Is the Democratic Party, is, is there a problem with elevating women in, in Ohio? I mean, I, I don't think you can say that it's a problem with the Democratic Party. I mean, I just think that it's important that we, as legislators, that we as Ohioans, that we as people make sure that we have equal opportunities, you know, starting when, when young women are growing up. You know, it's like I talk to some female business owners and they'll tell me, you know, you guys on the books have a, a female business development plan, but it's 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 bold. It's not it's not real. Like it's just a, something on paper. Like you need to really incentivize female owned businesses. You have to incentivize and wrap your arms around, you know, young females that are really trying to rise up the ranks rather than push back. You know, I don't I can't blame the Ohio Democratic Party for what has happened, why three women have dropped out. I mean, Cordray jumps in, Sutton gets sucked into his ticket, Whaley drops out and then Pillage drops out. Like, I can't say that that was the Ohio Democratic Party's fault, but it is what it is. I mean, the whole primary has changed. It's like yesterday was the first day of a brand new primary for me. We've we've run a primary for almost a year with a whole different crew than we're going to run for the last two and a half months. And I, I'll tell you, Nan was strong, Betty was strong, and and Connie was a really, really hard worker too. And you'd have to ask them about why they dropped out, but it's disappointing. It's definitely disappointing. I, I think even when we look at you know some of the other races, even the down ticket, there's only one Democratic woman who's running, Kathleen right. Clyde. And I, I guess when you look at the disparity in the state house as well you know it's i think there's only what 24% of the yeah. legislators in the state house are women you know why does it seem so male dominated that's not unusual too i mean yeah. that's sort of national statistics yeah i mean i don't have an answer other than to say that we have to start we need an environment where women feel a part of this process and from a young age in schools we have to start showing them that there's equal paths here, right? It's like, you can do whatever you want. And we are, we're going to show something on the books as governor that will show you young woman growing up in Youngstown that you'll have every opportunity as the guy that lives next door to you. It just can't be BS lip service. It has to be real. And that's the kind of conversations that I'm having 
with women's groups across the state. Like they see me as a fighter for them when it comes to reproductive rights and that's good and all, but like, it's a lot more than reproductive rights. I've heard that a couple of times. Like when people talk about women's rights in the state house, that's what they think of, but it's, it's not all about that. It's about equal opportunities in education, equal opportunities in the workplace, equal opportunities when it comes to um, having the same uh, opportunities in politics, and then having a system that actually embraces women rather than puts them in a position where they feel threatened or puts them in a position where nobody sticks up for them or listens to them when some horrible stuff happens to them with some legislator in the state house. Like that stuff's got to change, but we got to change it. You know, guys have to step up and change it and actually start walking the walk rather than just talking the talk. I want to switch gears and, and ask you a little bit about the redistricting ballot initiative that voters will consider in May. Uh, what do you think of it? Does it do enough? I think that the Fair Districts Coalition signed off on it. And so they worked incredibly hard to hold the Republicans' feet to the fire to do something. They were getting the signatures in November. That was a threat to the Republican legislature to do something now because they were a little bit scared of that deal in November. They didn't like that ballot initiative. It will definitely help. Is it perfect? No. But in a world where we have such a, such a disproportional number of Republicans and Democrats in the state house, I think it's a good thing. And I think that it is definitely a step in the right direction, just like it was when we did the state, the state initiative in 14, which I uh, negotiated with President Faber and, and Sykes and Huffman. You know, you got to work on what you can do in that particular day. And I think that day we got it done for Ohio. I think that in that day, working with the redistricting, the fair, the fair districts groups, um, I think we were able to get something good. And I think that it will really, really um, create an environment where we can finally start pushing gerrymandering out the door and have fair elections for people so that they feel that their, their votes actually count. It seems like it takes a community group to kind of make this threat of we're going to put this on the ballot. We're going to do this before we actually see any movement from lawmakers. And I'm wondering why is that? Why is that the case? Why does it take this threat from kind of outside forces? You know, because gerrymandering is not a new issue. Right. Well, the Republicans have all the power. Right. And so they're going to give up that power easy. If we didn't have the power of initiative and referendum in the Ohio Constitution, They'd be doing whatever they want. But that threat, that threat of the people backlashing, the people putting something on the ballot that they're not going to like so much is a great check on their power when they have all the numbers. You know, when I first started, Strickland was a governor. Democrats were in charge of the House. Republicans were in charge of the Senate. And people's biggest complaint was that nothing got done because there was actually checks and balances and sometimes passed the House, didn't pass the Senate. And it would go back and forth and go back and forth. Now it's like they cook all this stuff up in the back room and stuff happens like, boom, pass the House, pass the Senate, governor signs it. The only, the only block is the referendum, but the referendum is expensive. You got to take organizations. So I like the fact that people can start doing these initiatives with the hope of, of course, getting on the ballot. But if nothing else, putting the pressure on legislators to actually do something down there. But to answer your question, it's just because of the numbers. It's the sheer no, I mean, 24 to 9 in the Senate, I mean, that's, that's insane. If you pick up three, four, five seats this time, then, you know, if I win as governor, they can't override a veto. And that's a huge, huge check. And I think that that's what we need to do as Democrats, talk about winning those statewide seats, 
picking up a few in the House and the Senate, and having a more balanced system moving forward into the next election. Do you ever feel hamstrung because, you know, like you said, nine senators, I mean, you can't even feel the football team with that. I mean, how do you sort of operate when you're not only just in the minority, you're in the super minority? So here's what I do every day. Come up with a bill, try to find a Republican co-sponsor. If I find a Republican co-sponsor, great, we push it. Did that with broadband, do that with clean water initiatives across Lake Erie. Found good Republican co-sponsors for those bills. If I don't find a co-sponsor, then I push the bill. I stand up and I tell everybody why we need to make a change. If they don't listen, then I talk to you guys. And then we get some movement from the media because the media really can speak loudly on some of these issues that the state house won't act on. And then you have to throw bombs as last resort and say that, you know, tell people why this is, if money's blocking it, tell them that money's blocking it. If the will of the legislators are because they're scared to lose their power, then tell people. Then you just start, you, you, you just start truth telling about all the little details of why this bill is not moving like our for-profit charter school stuff that we did for five years. It wasn't moving because they were paying off the legislators at the state house and the Republican side to not do anything. That's the real deal. You look at the money that has gone to Republican legislators for for-profit charter schools in the last decade, and there was no movement on any kind of accountability and transparency. Finally, they passed a bill after, you know, we put out 10 bills and you guys wrote 50 articles about it, and they finally did something about it. I mean, paying off is a strong, strong phrase. Let's say they, they were giving them a very, a, a significant amount of money every single year from the governor all the way down, and they wouldn't even give me a hearing on my bill. And there was a connection there. Do those roadblocks that you perceive for pieces of legislation, the, the squabbling, the infighting, does that stuff even surprise you anymore? Like when you got to the state house, was that what you were expecting? No, and I, t- and I say that all the time. I mean, I did not expect that. I really thought like you go down here and you work with others in order to get things done like I did as a lawyer. Like you work with the guy on the other side. You work with the woman on the other side and you say, how do we get this done so that we can move on to the next thing, right? Like let's find some common ground. But then I realized the numbers were just so staggering in the Senate. And so I started, I still though, even today, like I'll go down there next week and I'll try to work with Republicans because that's what people want you to do. So it's not about you being a crybaby about not getting your bills passed or you not getting a fair shake at the hearings, whatever. Nobody cares. People just want you to get things done. And so you got to suck it up and just work. But yeah, it's very, very frustrating. And I've had a lot of run-ins with a lot of leadership in the Republican Senate because I didn't like the way that I was treated or I didn't like the way that somebody else was treated. I didn't like the way that people at home were being treated. So, I mean, I'll be vocal when I have to, but I always go in with the mindset of let's get something done first before you go completely nuts down there. When you look back at your career at the State House, what's your proudest accomplishment? I think there's a few. I mean, I, I would say the first one that was so meaningful was Uh, the Senate Bill 5 collective bargaining issue. Like, yeah, I was fortunate that I was just the ranking member on that committee when the bill got drafted and they set it on my my lap and they said, Joe, you're going to run the point on this because you're a workers' comp lawyer and this is a workers' rights issue. I was a couple years in the Senate, but I did. I mean, I studied all night long. I performed at the hearings all day long asking questions. I went on the campaign with the people across the state and we pushed that thing back and we beat it down. And we threw it back in the Republicans' face and said, look, 
that was that was a power grab and an overreach, and the people didn't appreciate that. That has to be the first one, uh, because the the relationships that I created in that were unbreakable, and I still see the people as I travel the state every single day. You know, I just saw a kid down in uh, Pomeroy. He's not a kid anymore. He was like ten when we did the when we did the referendum, and uh, he would give speeches at all these events. His mom worked. Uh, it was an OCSEA member, and he came up to me, and he had his letterman's jacket on. He was a senior in college or in, in high school, and uh, and that was very powerful. It made me realize that I've been doing this for a while now. And he was very thankful about you know the work that I put in, and that stuff's rewarding. You know, with the charter school stuff, that's another thing. I really worked hard on that. I'm not against choice at all, if as long as it's good choice and you have to follow the same rules. And that's always been my point. You know, the Republicans finally passed something in 2015 to do something about closure laws, to do something about accountability and transparency for these for-profit models. But we need to do more. Um, But I don't, people paint me as like this anti-choice person that hates all choice other than public schools and that I just cater to teachers unions. It's not true. It's just about a tax ripoff and accountability and transparency. So those two, I think, would be, um, in my opinion, the things that, that I hold dearest to my heart. What's the weirdest issue you've ever had to work on at the state house? Oh, um, I would say that remember when there was that wild animal breakout in I think it was Zanesville. Um, we had like a month of like wild animal testimony and people were talking about all the animals they had in their house and like, don't take away my, uh, this sort of, of, of monkey or it's like my son, you know, like I, it was like, I mean, it was heartfelt because people were being real and they really did love their animals and people love their animals, but it was like, it was kind of like eye opening to see how many wild animals were living in people's homes across the state of Ohio. Um, I would say that was probably the craziest talking about snakes and lizards every day and whether or not this lizard should be able to live in your house, but this lizard can, it was, it was crazy. Joe's from that kind of sweet spot of Youngstown where Democrats voted for Trump and kind of crossed over and it just caught the attention of basically the entire national media who wants to come in and tell the story of why does the Youngstown Democrat, a strong Democratic part of Ohio, why did it all of a sudden go for Trump? And Joe being from there, you know, he is sort of a different kind of Democrat than what you're used to getting a lot of, I mean, you know, just the Xboxer thing like we talked about earlier with him. He's a little more hard-nosed and rough around the edges and kind of... Uh, actually, he's kind of similar to Trump in some ways, very, you know, as say what you want. The, the, you know, I guess their rhetoric is probably different, but a little bit of their, I guess, performance, you would call it, might be the same. So I think Joe understands why Union, Mahoning Valley Democrats went for Trump. And I think it's an authenticity thing, and I think it's a anti-politician thing. He really, you know, he's a Democrat, he's going to vote Democrat, but he understands why those people went for Trump, because what they were hearing didn't sound real, didn't sound authentic. It didn't sound, they didn't feel like they were being heard. And I think with Joe Schiavone, if you could make any comparison uh, to Trump, uh, he is an authentic guy, he listens, he understands. And I think 
that's what the Mahoning Valley is looking for. And I think to a large part, that's what Ohio is looking for. And that's why Ohio went for Trump. They wanted a candidate who they felt like heard them and they wanted a candidate who they felt was authentic, even if they didn't agree with everything that he said. And Joe Schiavone, like Trump, is an authentic guy. When you sit down, he listens to you. He really listens to you, not just like spitting back talking points at you. I think he believes that Democrats, if they approach those regions with authenticity and candor and understanding, can also win those those areas. I think he believes that Trump fleeced Ohioans, and I believe that he believes that there will be a slow reckoning where they realize that they were lied to. And with that, let's get back to more with the interview we did with Joe Schiavone. Mahoning Valley. You know, voters were attracted to Trump in 2016. Yeah. Why? Because people were pissed and they want change and they thought that Hillary was just giving her giving them lip service and they didn't believe that she cared about them. And Trump came in and said that he was going to give people better jobs and they were going to have a better life if he was the president of the United States. And even if they didn't fully believe it, it was good enough for them on that particular day. And I've been working real hard to make sure that they understand not just in the valley, but people that crossed over for Trump come back to somebody like me. It's not that hard. They just want somebody, again, that is like good and actually is going to follow up on the promises that they make um, because they're, they are finding that Donald Trump is not followed up on a lot of the promises that he's made to them about job creation and about this, the infrastructure plan he just rolled out. I mean, that is not what he said he was going to do was make the states and the local governments pay for an infrastructure project. Like, that's what that bill is. And people are, are upset about that. There's a lot of talk about a Democratic wave in 2018 due to frustration with Trump, like the frustration you're describing. Do you sense frustration with Trump in the areas that you represent in the Valley? Some, but I mean, some are still are still dug in on, you know, we voted for him. Democrats get out of his way and let him do what he says he can do, do what he says he would do. Right. Like, I think it's mixed. I think it's mixed, but it always boils down to people just have a want that is so great about having a politician that like really can talk to them and really can understand them. And they haven't found one for many, many years. Some will talk about trafficking as the last person that really understood them, that, re- that actually fought for them and went down there and talked about issues that were important to them. And so that, to me, is where I go. I don't go into a room and say... You know, who did everybody vote for in here in 2016? Let's talk about why and what happened. Like, that's just divide. You're just moving people into one side of the room and the other. You go in there and you talk about moving into a place where people can come together in 2018 when it comes to jobs, when it comes to education for kids, when it comes to opportunities for communities, when it comes to dealing with drugs. Like, all this stuff is what people want to talk about, no matter if they voted for Trump or Hillary or whoever. And that's where I go. That's where I stay. If you ask me opinions about anything else, I'll give you the answer. But I'm going to go into those areas and talk about what I'm going to do as governor in order to make your life better. And that's the way that I think people, they like that approach. Is that Should that be the Democratic approach in 2018 to win back some of these Trump voters? These, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's you can call out, I'll call out Trump if I disagree with something, just like I'll call out the president of the Senate or, or a Republican legislator if they cross me about something that I know they're wrong about. Like, 
like the infrastructure thing. Like that makes me mad because he promised everybody that he was going to do a trillion dollar infrastructure plan. And on paper it is, but you know, 800 billion of it is going to come from local governments and states. That's not a federal infrastructure plan. That's the same stuff where you just tax cut a trillion, $1.5 trillion. And now you don't have any money left to do your trillion dollar infrastructure rebuild. So you're going to put it on the backs of the locals. It's the same stuff the state politicians do. Billion dollar tax cut. Now you don't have money for schools. You don't have money for local governments. You don't have money for future investment. That stuff doesn't work and people are sick of it. And throwing, you know, a thousand dollar bonus at somebody is good for a day. But that's not rebuilding the future. That's not helping them have a better opportunity in life. It might help them pay their bills for their month. But that's it. And that's not that's not fair. And people have to understand that. In 2016, there's been a lot of talk about how the Democratic Party had a middle America problem. They weren't connecting with voters um, in Ohio or Pennsylvania or Michigan. You know, there's this perception that the Democratic Party is a coastal party. Do you think the Democratic Party has has a problem or how do you think the Democratic Party can reconnect with those sort of middle middle America voters, the, the people you grew up with? I think you have to be, you have to do what I'm doing. You have to go out and you have to talk to people. You're not going to be able to, to reach these people by, you know, showing them some five-minute speech about how you're going to fight for them and give them a bunch of stuff about jobs and then put out a 100-page plan about how you're going to get there. Like, it's too detailed and it's too political. Like, people are sick of politicians, not just Democratic politicians. They're sick of politicians in general because they feel like they're disconnected from them. So the way as Democrats we can get this back is to have people, it doesn't just have to be young people, but people that are from communities like Youngstown, like Canton, like Cleveland, like Toledo, like Mansfield, like Lima, like these, these industrial places that have been left behind, like Marion. Like you, you come from there and you say, I want to help this community come back. This is what I know about these people. They're hardworking people that just want an opportunity. So let's do some programming where we're giving people the skills in order to fill the jobs that are open. Let's clean up our lake. Let's clean up our river. Let's rebuild the state of Ohio. Let's do some stuff that actually impacts people. Let's fix our roads so that the voter, when they come out of their house, they see that investment. They see that investment on their roads. They see that investment in their downtowns. They see that investment when it comes to drugs. They can feel it because it's real. But if you're just giving lip service... They're not going to buy it, and they shouldn't. So I think it's about Democrats getting out in communities and doing the work and driving from community to community and getting in front of people and not being afraid to stand up there and say, this is who I am, this is why I'm here, but I'm going to do questions for an hour. Open questions, ready, go, and do it, because that's what I do every night. Open forum questions, no screening, no nonsense. Answer every single question, even if they're tough ones. Then people start believing that there's somebody real. You mentioned something interesting there that I kind of want to touch on that, um, you know, Democrats can't go around throwing out 100 page, you know, policy pamphlets at the average voter. And something that I've noticed is it seems like the Democratic Party has this this real problem just branding at all. You look at Republicans and they I mean, I think it's fairly safe to say they seem a little better at it, you know, even if they're just coming up with a chant or a slogan or something like that. Why does it seem like Democrats have had such a problem with, you know, coming up with any kind of brand? I don't have an answer for that. I, I really don't know. I mean, and that's why I've tried to, I'm not separating myself from the Republican or from the Democrat, you know, establishment, but it's like, be your own person. 
be your own brand. Be a brand that connects with Republicans and Democrats, independents, people that don't really care about politics and which side you are, but understand that they have to vote for somebody good, and they will. And so, yeah, that's why we talk about jobs. That's why we talk about schools. That's why we talk about drugs. That's why we talk about rebuilding communities. That's why we talk about health care. Like, you don't have to have some slogan, but talk about stuff that people care about. And don't get so far in the weeds and don't point fingers every single day at the other side. That's the thing that people get so mad about. And, you know, that that's the brand of being a hardworking person that understands people. That's the winning brand, in my opinion. Have Democrats had an authenticity problem the past, call it eight years? Yeah, but I think the Republicans have, too. I think politicians in general have. And that's why Trump was able to step in and... I mean, I never thought he was authentic, but it was different. It was different enough that people were willing to take a flyer on it. And he said that he was going to do certain things, and he called everybody out for not doing them, and and it connected with people. So, yeah, I think Democrats have. I think Republicans have. I think politicians have generally. And that's why I think there is an opening for a lot of – it doesn't have to be young in age – but new politicians in different roles here. So we've been asking everyone this um, in our podcast, and I'm curious for your thoughts too. There's been a lot of talk about whether Ohio is even important in the national sphere anymore. You know, Ohio was always like a swing state. It was always a state to win. Politicians uh, across the country have always focused on the importance of Ohio nationally. Does Ohio still matter? Oh, I think so. And I think you'll see it this time. I think if I think we do have good candidates down ticket. I think we have good I mean we have Sherrod at the top. Hopefully I'll be in there and I can work with Sherrod in the down ticket so we could put together a real plan to get from corner to corner every single day talking about real issues. I think that Richardson does that. I think that Space does that. Uh, Clyde's very good about, you know, talking about voter rights. Uh, Dettelback does a great job of showing his experience and, and why he would be a good attorney general. And Sherrod, Sherrod. I mean, he knows how to talk to people, and he works real hard. I think with the right combination with a strong gubernatorial candidate that can connect, I think we can get it done, and I think we can we can swing swing it back. Do you think the down-ticket candidates can win on their own merits, or is their success dependent on the top of the ticket? I mean, it's hard to break out. If you look at the way this goes, I mean, you need the top of the ticket pools people. I mean, yeah, every individual is going to pool some people, but that's why you need everybody rowing in the right direction. And you need strong people at the top. I mean, you saw what happened with Fitzgerald and everybody got slaughtered. And I remember watching I remember watching some of those campaign workers for the down ticket candidates in that election demoralized. I mean, it's demoralizing to have to drive across the state knowing that you're going to get killed. It's demoralizing that you have to work your butt off every day knowing that the top of the ticket is such a drag that it would, it's going to take a true miracle in order to be competitive. And having to do that for six or eight months, that was tough. And people are still angry about that. And so that's why I think that the Democratic Party really has to, and Democratic voters, really need to think about who they're going to select at the top of the ticket in order to drive this thing home and do it in a way that hasn't been done in a while. Do you think, how do you think Democrats uh, can win Ohio in 2018? It's going to take it's going to take outworking the other side on the ground. 
because we're not going to have as much money. We never do. You know, and some people say, well, because of that money gap, you're not going to be able to make up the difference. I think you can. I think we will. It's just going to take the effort that has never been put in before. And, you know, I'm willing to do it. I know those down ticket candidates are willing to do it. I see them every night. You know, I know Sherrod's putting in the work. I think that if everybody comes together and really works on this stuff, it's going to take grit. It's going to take hard work. It's going to take grinding it out. And it's going to take people that are going to stand up and answer tough questions and are going to be able to say, this is why you should be a Democrat this election and these days moving forward. This is why voting Democrat will help you. It will help you because we have plans in order to give you better opportunities. We have plans in order to keep young people in communities. We have plans in order to rebuild our state and refocus our priorities rather than just giving it back to the highest earners and show them the path. And if you show them the path and you do it in a not a thousand page piece of legislation, but you do it in a two minute question and answer with them, I think you can get some head shaking up and down and then you, you, you're in the game. We talked about you being on the younger side of politicians earlier. And I'm wondering, do you ever get any feedback from maybe party elders or whatever that you jumped ahead in line? You, you know, you're 38 running for governor, you know, the wait your turn kind of mentality. Is that still prevalent at all in Ohio politics? Yeah, I mean, if there would have been an easier way for me to do this. (laughs) Like I could have, there was talks about me running for a down ticket position. There was talks about me running for a judge. There was talks about me running for something that would have been easier than running for governor when you're 38 years old with nine years of political experience. But, I mean, you got to take shots in life, and you got to sometimes shake it up. And so I've heard from people that this might not have been the smartest political move that any politician has ever made, but who cares? I mean, people people take you got to take a shot in life and you got to take a risk and if you think you're you have the best product then you put it out and that's what we're doing and so yeah I hear that stuff or I hear you know some nice lady out in in um last night said well I know what you're doing you know even if you don't win this year you know you're going to put up a really good show and, and get it done another year I'm like well that's not the goal we're going to win this year and she's like looked at me and like shook her head. And then I spoke. And then afterwards she said, that was very good. I mean, you're a very strong speaker. I'm like, so, I mean, you got, but yeah, when you walk into a room and you're a young person and you tell them you're running for governor, it is a, you have to then right after you do that, you got to show them why you're the best candidate. You got to show them that you're capable to do this job. You got to show them that you have a grasp on the issues that is real and meaningful and that you can truly lead. That's always the struggle for me is to make sure that I'm making that connection immediately because I'll probably not get a second chance to go to Collide, Ohio, right? But we did it last night. You know, it's like you you make first impressions every night and you got to make them last. I was going to say, what goes through your head when you hear something like that? Maybe someone says, oh, you know, you you might put up a good fight this time and maybe eight years down the road or something like that. When you're running right now, what what goes through your mind? You just let it – you just – let it bounce off you. I mean, you can't let it eat you alive. This stuff will drive you nuts. I mean, I, I just, every day there's a lot of pressure in a lot of different ways. And so I just try to win the day. You know, like today, we're here doing this. We're going to have some meetings with some elected officials, do a couple of other interviews later. Tomorrow I'm going to Toledo, meeting with folks. Like, it's just about building and building and building. And you do the best you can. I mean, when, when we're growing up as kids, like your parents say, do the best you can. Work as hard as you possibly can. Good things will happen. 
that's all you could do in life. Um, and, and that's what we're doing in this race. To go back to that Mike Tyson quote for a minute, I'm curious, what's, what's more difficult, running for office or getting punched in the mouth? Uh, I mean, at least I, it's a tough call. I mean, when you get punched, at least it only hurts for a minute. Like, politics is a grind. I mean, it, and it is a, it is something that, you know, you, you, you can't anticipate all of the things that occur. And that's the hard thing for me is that, you know, you're, you're trying to do the best you can, but you have people that perceive what you're doing for this reason, that reason, or another reason. And then you have others that are telling you to do this, that, or the other thing. And you're like, no, I'm just trying to do what we can do. And what we can do is bring people good, strong messaging about how to make the state better today. Not in eight years, not in 16 years. I don't care about that stuff. I mean, if this doesn't work out for me in this race, will I be disappointed? Of course. Will I help whoever wins? Absolutely. That's how you move forward and you show that you're a leader. You know, I think we have a good path on this. Others might disagree. But we're going to put out a good product, and we're going to and we're going to be working every single second until we get to that finish line. All right, Joe. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to come back on anytime, and I appreciate the opportunity. 